couple weeks ago, I was um, uh, working at Starbucks and uh, I was working at a table and, and I had my laptop and a number of books open and a number of papers I'd made myself at home and I was uh, getting quite a bit done. And lo and behold, it came to the point where I needed to use the washroom, right? I needed to use the washroom and I realized, wait a minute, I got my MacBook here. It's really expensive. And I was like, ah, I was nervous about leaving it, you know, uh, while, I, while I went off to the washroom. So, so I looked around the place and there's only a few people there. There's a couple of like college age guys, table next to me. There's an elderly woman, a couple tables behind me. And then off in the corners, a few other people. And they all looked fairly innocuous, right? They all looked fairly harmless. But I was like, oh man, if my laptop walked while I was gone, that would not be good. So, you know, I, I didn't really know what to do. So eventually I got my zipper case for, for my laptop and I put it in there and I took it with me into the restroom, all right? And I felt kind of weird doing that. It felt kind of uh, uh, like, uh, what's the word? Um, paranoid or, or whatever for doing that, you know? But I, I just didn't feel comfortable leaving it. And so I felt self-conscious taking it into the bathroom and then coming back out feeling more self-conscious because I felt like everyone was looking at me. I felt like I needed to go to everybody in that place and say, it's me, not you, okay? <laughs> it's me, not you. I'm sure you're a wonderful person. I didn't mean to you know, offend you in any way, but it was just, it's just me. I had to take it with me, you know? But it's hard to trust somebody you don't know. And they're probably wonderful people, trustworthy people, but because I didn't know them, you know, it, it, it was just kind of awkward. It was kind of hard. Have you ever been placed in situations where you were called upon to trust somebody you didn't know? And your mind races, you know, and you're, you're trying to make value judgments maybe based on their appearance or, you know, because you got nothing else to go by. You, 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 don't, you don't really know them. They might be wonderful. They might be a horrible person, but it's super hard to trust somebody you don't know. I want to ask you about how you're doing in trusting Jesus with your life, with the big things, with the little things, with the everyday things. How are you doing trusting him? How well do you know him? Because it makes a huge difference on how well you're able to trust him. We're continuing our teaching series in the Gospel of Mark, and the one thing we've noticed is that Mark has a very concise, straightforward uh, manner in which he's presented uh, this gospel, right? And Mark doesn't go out of his way to talk anybody into anything. He doesn't build this, you know, complicated apologetic for, you know, all the reasons you should trust Jesus and all that. He basically just lays it out. Here's what happened. Jesus had this encounter. Jesus had this happen. He tells these different stories and he tells people, he speaks of people's responses to Jesus. Some people held him at arm's length. Some people were openly hostile. Other people embraced him. And Mark just kind of lays it out. And to you and I, he's saying, hey, it's up to you. Here's what happened. Here's what some people did. Here's what others did. What are you gonna do? And I wanna suggest that's the challenge for us this morning in asking the question, will we trust our lives to Christ? And what you're going to see in chapter six here this morning is you have to start to wonder, is anybody going to trust in this servant king? 
that Jesus was kind of on a cold streak here, at least in the way Mark lays it out, in that, man, people are struggling with this whole concept of, of trusting in him. And so we're gonna plow through all of chapter six, just kind of do a broad overview of the chapter and think about this, uh, this whole concept of being able to trust Jesus. I want you to see, first of all, his hometown wouldn't do it. His hometown wouldn't do it. They couldn't do it. They, they, they couldn't trust in him. And beginning at verse one, here's what it says. Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. Hometown boy made good, right? He was home. This is where he grew up. These were his peeps. He knew a lot of people. They knew his family. And he was this up and coming rabbi. He was making a name for himself. His reputation was spreading throughout the country. So this was a big deal. In this little farm town, he came back. And they trusted him enough to say, hey, you want to be guest speaker at church on Sunday? More like in the synagogue on the Sabbath, but you get the idea, right? And so here's what happens. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue and many who heard him were amazed. They were amazed at this guy. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? Then they scoffed. Isn't that weird? How, how fractured people can be, how wishy-washy people can be. On one hand, they're like, what? He's an incredible teacher. What? He does these miracles. But then the very next sentence says, they scoffed. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Then Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. And it's the picture of Jesus walking away at the end of the day, just shaking his head like, you gotta be kidding me. I can't believe the way they're not willing to trust in me. So first they were amazed, but then they scoffed. In the world in which Jesus lived, it was a common misconception in the Greco-Roman world that godliness was tied into nobility. And so truly godly people came from a lineage. They came from a pedigree that would lend itself to godliness. And so you needed to be from uh, a family of priests. You needed to be from a family of, you know, religious authority figure type people, you know, kind of like a, a nobility, like a royalty kind of thing. And they said, that's not who this guy is. We know his family. His dad's a carpenter. He's a carpenter. We know his brothers, we know his sisters. They're just everyday folk like us. And so it tripped them up in really accepting Jesus to be the Messiah and who it was that he claimed to be. But in verse three in this text, you see really the, um, the dynamics of lack of trust right here. Look at verse three. It says, first of all, they were deeply offended. People are offended by the message of the gospel so often. Because the gospel wrestles us to the ground 
and makes us admit that we are broken. It forces us to own our junk and say, I have issues, right? I'm a sinner. I've got problems. I'm separated from God. And man, that's a blow to the ego. That's really hard on pride. And when the threat is you can no longer control your life, you're no longer on the throne of your life, you need to place Jesus there, that offends a lot of people. Like, who says I need to be forgiven? Who says I can't take care of myself? And, and people are easily offended at the message of the gospel because the gospel is good news. God loves you and he's provided a way, but it's bad news in the sense of you have to own your junk and you have to admit that you need forgiveness in the first place. And so that offends people. But then the second phrase is they refused to believe. I want to suggest to you the very dynamic of unbelief. In the final analysis, unbelief is a willful act. In other words, it's not that people can't believe. It ultimately boils down to they choose not to believe. They won't believe. And so his own people, his own hometown, even his own family, we know, were at this point saying, nope, don't buy it. And so his own people were struggling with this idea of trusting in him. Well, then we read in verses six through 12, he sends his, his, he sends his 12 disciples off on a mission trip. He divides them up uh, in twos and sends them out to begin preaching, to begin doing miracles just like he was doing, and it was highly successful. They experienced a lot of success. They healed people. They cast out demons. It went really, really well. And what's interesting is that in the Old Testament, the great Old Testament prophets that had a lot of power and authority, like Moses or Samson or Elijah, they didn't have the ability to deputize others. They didn't have the ability to transfer their authority and their power onto other people because that's God's prerogative. They couldn't do that. Well, you see, Mark was setting Jesus apart from the other great Old Testament prophets because he was able to deputize others and to give others the same power that he had. And the reason why the other Old Testament prophets couldn't do it is because that was God's prerogative alone. And it's not exactly Mark's point. This isn't just an Old Testament prophet. This is God himself who's able to give his power to others so that they can do great works as well. Well, now moving on in the middle of the chapter, I wanted to see not only could his hometown not trust in him, but his enemies wouldn't do it either. His enemies wouldn't do it. Stories here of the tragic ending to the life of John the Baptist. And it talks about this king named Herod. And Herod Antipas was a bad man. He was what we would call a moral pervert. He's a dude you wouldn't want him living in your neighborhood. You would want his home to be by the local grade school in your neighborhood, okay? He was an evil, foul person in every sense of the word, right? And as we read in, in, in chapter six, what, what happens is it, it, Mark talks about the fact that people had a lot of different theories about who Jesus was. And, and Herod thought that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead, that's 
Herod's theory of who Jesus was, that he was John the Baptist raised from the dead. And then Mark gives us the backstory of why Herod thought that. And the reason why Herod thought that was because Herod had John put to death. He had him beheaded. And he was haunted in his dreams by that decision. And so when this miracle worker, this great teacher came up, he was like, oh man, John the Baptist is coming back to haunt me. I mean, my sins are coming back on me. Uh, and he, he, was, he, he just thought this is a really, really bad thing. But you see, Mark tells the story that what happened, how John the Baptist was killed, was that he had confronted Herod. And he confronted Herod because Herod stole his brother's wife. You talk about family drama, right? So Herod stole his brother's wife and John confronted him and said, buddy, that's wrong. You shouldn't have done that. That's against the will of God. Well, you don't tell a king what to do. Herod took great offense at that, made him angry, but it super ticked off his wife, the woman that he stole. It really made her angry. Well, as it would happen, this woman's daughter, so Herod's stepdaughter, does a dance for Herod and his friends. He has this party with all the movers and shakers in the area, and she does this erotic dance, okay? She does this sexually charged, erotic dance. All the guys get excited. Herod's posturing for what an awesome, powerful ruler king he is. And so at the end of the dance, they're all clapping and cheering. And he goes, you know what? That was awesome. I'll give you anything you ask for. Ask her up to half my kingdom and I'll give it to you. So she runs to her mom and says, hey mom, what should I ask for? Stepdad just said I could have whatever I want. And of course he was expecting like her to say, you know, a night on the town or sleep over with my girlfriends or, uh, you know, a bunch of cash or whatever. But her mom says, ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And that's what she came and asked for. And Herod was like, oh my gosh. He never anticipated that and he didn't want to do that, but he was painted himself in a corner because publicly he made this promise and all the guys are watching, all the guys are listening and he ended up having John executed. And so now when Jesus came along, he was like, he's come back from the grave, man, to haunt me or something. But I want you to see Verse 20, this commentary on Herod. It says, Herod respected John and knowing that he was a good and holy man, he protected him. Herod was greatly disturbed when he talked with John, but even so, he liked to listen to him. And so you see, Herod was intrigued, but he couldn't accept. He kind of liked him, but at the same time kind of didn't like him. You know, and he understood, he understood that he was a good man. He was a guy from God. That didn't mean he accepted him, but he, he understood that to be true. And so in Herod's mind, it was a tragedy that he had to have John executed, but he felt like he had no choice. But what an example of willful unbelief that Herod saw he was a good and holy man, wanted to protect him, liked to listen to him talk, but as far as obeying his message, he's not willing to do it. And so his enemies wouldn't do it. Finally, I want you to see in verses 30 through 52, his own disciples were struggling with this. Even his own inner circle, the 12, were struggling with this concept of trusting in Jesus. He uses two stories to illustrate their struggling with trust. He tells the story of the feeding of the 5,000. 
and Jesus walking on the water. Now, feeding in the 5,000, that's a pretty familiar story, right? Um, teaching to great crowds and uh, got time, you know, people are hungry. There's no Chick-fil-A's or McDonald's around or whatever. How are they gonna eat? What are they gonna do? Jesus ultimately performs this miracle with five loaves, two fishes, feeds everybody. It's pretty impressive. It, it was one of the few, if not the only uh, miracle that was recorded in all four gospels, okay? So it was, a, it was a key miracle in the life of Christ. Well, pick it up in verses 35 through 37, the dynamic of this miracle about to, when it was about to occur. It says, late in the afternoon, his disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the nearby farms and villages and buy something to eat. But Jesus said to them, you feed them. With what, they asked. We have to work for months to earn enough money to buy food for all of these people. You see, his disciples saw the problem, but they didn't see the potential. Even though they had seen Jesus do so many things and such effective ministry was taking place here, they were willing to just send the people away. They didn't understand who they were with and what Jesus had the potential to do. And so even though they may have grown spiritually, they still didn't have that vision, that faith, that trust that Jesus could take care of the situation and Jesus could use them to help take care of the situation. And so they were still growing. They were still lacking at this point. Now, at the end of this long day of ministry, Jesus sends them on a boat to cross the lake. Remember, he had done this once before and he went up into the hills to pray. Then middle of the night, when the disciples get caught in another storm and they're struggling against the winds and the wave and, and they're really exhausted, Jesus decides to go out onto the lake and join them. And Jesus starts walking on the water. You know, I mean, you know, shortest distance between two points is a straight line. So Jesus isn't going around the shore, right? To get to the other side, he's boom, cuts straight across on the water. Jesus had to have been cracking himself up doing this, okay? Because normally Jesus followed the rules of basic humanity. I mean, he didn't like go walking through the air, or, you know, flying around. He walked, he acted like a normal human normally, right? Even though he had the powers to do whatever he wanted. But in this particular case, he was like, I gotta catch up to him. I'm not going around on the beach, you know? And so he's walking, I'm, I'm sure Jesus was kind of laughing as he was walking towards him. And you see, they're real superstitious in those days. And it was common to believe that demons or apparitions would come up out of the water during the nighttime. And so people were kind of spooked by water at night and they didn't like it. And so as Jesus was walking across the water towards them and they see him coming towards them, they're like, ah, ghost. And they're all scared and everything. And, and Jesus walks up and goes, nope, not a ghost, just me. Steps into the boat, bam, the, wa the, the water gets calm, the wind stops. And then here's what's recorded. Verse 51 and 52. They were totally amazed for they still didn't understand the significance of the miracles of the loaves. Their hearts were too hard to take it in. Anytime you see hard-heartedness in the New Testament, that's a word picture of a person's unwillingness to believe. And so these things they were experiencing with Jesus, they still weren't willing to trust or believe in him. And so you begin to wonder, was anyone really gonna be able to trust in this servant king? Here's what I wanna do in the remainder of our time 
briefly. I want to talk about how you can entreat, how you can increase your trust in Christ. Wherever you're at on the spectrum, maybe you're a beginner, you have way more fear, way more doubts than you do trust and you're just beginning, or you're on the other end of the spectrum, you've been walking with Christ for years and, and you've really developed in your faith. The truth is wherever you're at on the spectrum, there's always room to grow. There's always reason to trust Jesus more. So I, I want to talk about some practical ways you and I can in, increase our trust in him. Now, here's what I would liken it to. If I said, I want you to trust me more. I want you to trust Dave Corlew more. And you were open to the concept. No, say, okay, Dave, I'm open to trusting you more, but we got some work to do, okay? What would be your game plan if your challenge was to trust me more? My guess is it would be something like this. Okay, one day, you and I got to start spending time together. I really don't know you very well. And so we need to spend time together. I, I got to get a feel for you, who you are, what you're about, if you're really a trustworthy person. Got to spend time together, okay? Second thing you'd say is, Dave, I got to sit back and think about my track record with you, our history. Have I ever betrayed you? Have I ever let you down? Have I ever lied to you? You know, from what you do know about me, do I seem like a trustworthy person? I got to review our history. Third thing you do is, I got to talk to some people who hang out with Dave. I got to talk to Pastor Chris. I got to talk to his wife. I got to talk to a few people who, who have known him for a few years, see what they think of the guy. What is he really like, you know? And that would be your game plan if you decided, I'm going to try to trust Dave more. I want to suggest to you, it's the exact same thing with Jesus. Jesus is alive, Jesus is a person, it's a relationship and it's the same thing. So here are four steps to trusting Jesus more. The first is you gotta invest in knowing him better. You have to live your life investing in knowing him better. You can't trust somebody you don't know. But the better you trust somebody, uh, the better you know somebody, the easier it will be for you to trust them. Rather, you must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so you're intentional about learning more about Jesus, who he is, what he's done for you. And it'll make a difference in your being able to trust him. You spend time together. You read his word. You pray. You listen. You sit under the teaching of God's word. And as you get to know Christ better, it'll be easier to trust him. This afternoon, uh, the Cubs are playing. We're hoping to sweep the St. Louis Cardinals this afternoon. Okay, the Cubs are hot right now. I'm looking forward to watching the game. I'm hoping I can catch at least a few innings. Here's the deal. This afternoon, if I sit down in my recliner to watch the Cubs game, and all of a sudden, my wife, Karen, walks into the room with a nail gun and just walks up to me and ka-chunk, puts a two-inch nail in my thigh. I mean, just out of the blue. Doesn't say a word, just comes up and puts a two-inch nail in my thigh. How am I gonna respond? What am I gonna think? Okay, here's what I'm gonna think. First of all, ouch, that really hurt, okay? Second of all, I'm gonna think, man, I hope she doesn't do that a second time. I hope that gun's loaded with only one nail. But the third thing I'm gonna think is this. Karen must have a really good reason for doing that. I have no idea what that reason is. I can't imagine a good reason for her doing that, but she must have a good reason. Now, you know why I would come to that conclusion? because we've been together for 40 years and she's never once done that. <laughs> okay, not once. She's never threatened to do that. She's always been kind to me. She's always been nice. She's never betrayed me. She's never hurt me like that. And so if she did that, my only conclusion could be, there must be a reason. I don't know what it is. 
And you know what? When, when your life takes an unexpected left-hand turn, when a sudden storm comes up in your life and you don't understand what's going on, but if you know God and you trust in him, you say, I don't understand why this is happening and it hurts and I hope it doesn't happen again, but you know what? I believe he's in control and I believe there's gotta be a reason. And so I'm gonna continue to trust. Second thing you need to do is this. You gotta remember. You gotta remember. Isaiah 46, verse nine, remember the things I have done in the past for I alone am God. I am God and there is none like me. You gotta review your track record with God. And the question you gotta ask yourself, has God ever been mean to you? Has God ever let you down? Has God ever not provided for you? Karen and I ask ourselves that when we deal with family crises and different issues in our life. And the answer is always the same. God's always been good to us. God's always provided for us. God's always been trustworthy. And so when we come to a situation where we're frightened, where we're overwhelmed, we evaluate the situation and say, okay, we're not gonna panic. We don't understand what's going on. This isn't pleasant, but the track record, we remember all that God's done for us and we're like, okay, we're gonna trust him. Third thing, you need to learn from others. You need to learn from others. You need to see how other people trust Jesus, especially in difficult times and learn from them. Hebrews 3, verse 12 through 14. I wish we could spend more time on these verses, but we're gonna at least read them. Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters, make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other every day while it is still today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. For if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ." Friends, do you understand the importance of being with other people of faith? You need other people speaking into your life, especially when you enter a storm, so they can help you think straight, so they can help you not panic, so they can warn you to not stray, so they can remind you God is faithful, don't panic. All those things are so important. And if you're living a Lone Ranger Christian life on your own, you're gonna struggle growing spiritually because you were never meant to do it alone. Can I share with you my own personal schedule? This is my typical week, every week. Here's my schedule. Every Tuesday morning at 6.40 a.m., I have a half hour phone call with a friend who lives in the city. And we talk about what's going on in our lives. We pray for each other. We hang up and go about our day. But every morning we have that phone call Every Tuesday, we have that phone call at 6.40 a.m. Every Tuesday night, I have my growth group and I meet with another group of people. We study the Bible, we pray together, we encourage each other and we, we have fellowship, right? Every Thursday morning, I meet with my men's triad and I meet with two other guys. We talk about our marriages and our kids. We talk about our jobs. We, we talk about our walk with Christ. We pray for each other. I try to average about once a week, I have a lunch or a breakfast with a pastor friend of mine, somebody else who's in ministry, who understands my job and we talk and interact with each other. And then I have constant interaction with my wife. Now, why am I intentional about building those things into my schedule? It's because I need it. I understand who Dave Corlew is and by nature, I'm self-centered. By nature, I could be an angry person. And 
it's easy for me to be fearful. It's easy for me to be filled with doubts. And I need other believers around me to help me, to prop me up, to encourage me, to warn me. And so to get to know Christ better, when I hear their stories of how they're dealing with life, I learn from them and it builds into my life and helps me in my trust and faith. Then lastly, I wanna suggest to you this. The fourth way you can grow in your trust of Jesus is ask him to help you with trusting him. If you have fear, admit it. If you have doubt, admit it. Own it. He already knows, but he wants to hear you say it. And I love Mark 9, 24. It's my life verse. Uh, This father brings his demon-possessed child to Jesus and says, Jesus, if you can help me, please help me. Jesus said, if I can help you. What do you mean, if I can help you? And then here's the father's response. He said, I do believe but help me overcome my unbelief. And I totally resonate with that. That's the kind of person I am. There are so many situations in life where I I do believe, I honestly really, really do believe, but with that said, I'm struggling, I'm afraid, I've got doubts. I, I, I don't believe perfectly, right? And it's as simple as just saying that to Jesus. And you know what? Jesus loves it. He loves the authenticity and he'll work with that. And he healed this father's son, took the demons right out of him, even though the father said that. And so you don't get rejection when you own your stuff and you ask Jesus for help like that, but we need to do it. So simple final step, if you're struggling and trusting Jesus is admit it to him and ask for help and he'll give that to you.